Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range. And I can't tell you how important it is for businesses to have a line of credit so they can make an investment in their business or even for unexpected emergencies. Our line of credit program is easy to get in place, inexpensive when used, and costs nothing to set up, making it a great cash backup plan. If you'd like to learn more about our line of credit program, please visit us at fscreditline.com. Again, that's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Or give us a call at 862-207-4118. If you apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file that you can use if you use your line of credit. Just remember the time to set up your line of credit is when you don't need it, so that when you do need it, it's ready to go. I can tell you over those 25 years, there's been a number of times when a line of credit has saved my butt. And uh, it's a good thing to have in place, especially ours, because it doesn't cost anything until it's used. And that really is a smart thing to get in place right now. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Sean Munger. Sean is a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. He has a PhD in environmental history and a JD in, and practiced commercial real estate law before getting his advanced degrees in history. He has consulted business and organizations on the changes coming as a result of climate change and its effect on our history. Sean, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. So uh, we are a screwed up uh, race. Uh, 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 the human race is screwed up, isn't it? <laughs> you could say that, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we kind of live in our own world of only today, and we don't know history, and we repeat and make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is true for the most part. Um, I, I think there's some... There's some truth to the, I mean, the old adage, you know, those who don't know history is, is, are doomed to repeat it. Repeat it's it. not, not literally true, but there is a ring of truth in it. And uh, of course, I'm a believer that understanding what's happened in the past is uh, often the key to preparing the future. And even that basic truism is not as uh, well embraced as uh, uh, you would think it would be since it seems so so obvious, but you know, that's what I do yeah. as a historian is try to get people interested in, in what happened in the past and why it's valuable. Um, you know, history is not just an entertainment product that, uh, that you consume the same way that you consume, you know, Netflix or read a book or, you know, for, for pleasure or whatever. It is something that you have to engage with and really think about in order to make useful to you. Yeah, I mean, today's topic is going to be, you know, uh, how understanding history can help your business. And, you know, we're going to really dive into that. Um, uh, before we kind of move more into that, though, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, uh, you know, in my understanding, there are, I, I've heard someone say, or maybe I read that they wish the Middle East would forget all their history <laughs> because they seem to get, yeah. Cause they seem <laughs> to just get so wrapped up in their history that they can't seem to move forward. And uh, so there's kind of a, uh, uh, there's two sides of the coin, right? Yeah. Um, the, the remark about the middle East, I, I think is, is interesting because I mean, everything that happens in, in that part of the world is deeply rooted to history and history that goes back far beyond, you know, the United States or, or our, our our history as a country. Um, as you were saying that, I was thinking of something that I, I remember uh, just in the aftermath of 9-11, one of the statements that Osama bin Laden made, or actually I believe it might have even been before 9-11, but when he issued his initial sort of declarations of war against the West, he said, well, this war has been going on 80 years. And he was referring to the situation where the British and the principally the British empire carved up 
the remnants of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One. Very few Americans know that that happened, and yeah. so that was a, a reference that people are like, "Huh? You know, what is he? Eighty years ago? How can anything that happened eighty years ago be?" relevant, but it's totally relevant to what was happening at that time and what's happening now. So I think that's a really good example of how, you know, nobody's going to forget their history uh, except us maybe. <laughs> but um, I, so I, I would turn, you know, what, what you said on its head that, uh, you know, people who, who say, well, I wish the Middle East would forget their history. Well, maybe they have the right idea. Maybe we should remember more of ours. You know, maybe that would help us engage with them on a, in a, a level that has some more commonality. Um, but that's a great example of, of, of how history is relevant to the present. Yeah. I think uh, Sean, you were, uh, when I, when I asked you to come on to today's podcast, I think you were taken back, right? Uh, you were like, uh, I don't know if I, you know, see how entrepreneurship and then, you know, uh, relates to, History. I, I mean, we didn't talk about it, but were you taken back when I kind of had asked you to come on? Uh, a little bit, I, and I, I think part of it is I, I know there are a lot of podcasts that are about you know how to how to make money and build your business and things like that, and and they are many of them are focused on a very hands on kind of uh, you know right in front of your face type of way. But I mean, the, the way that I have advised businesses and institutions and individuals is much more of a, a bigger picture type of yeah. uh, type of story. And that let's just say it's, it's I'm reached out to less often for those reasons than someone who, who has, you know, here, here is how to, how to build a business in a short term, which I think a lot of people are interested in. And I wish that more people were interested in the bigger pictures and kind of the deep history that does affect everything, including business and politics and our cultural life and everything else. Um, so yes, I suppose I was taken aback a little, but uh, very pleased uh, once we did talk about it and understood where you were going with this. So um, yeah. So, and so I'll, I'll let you in on uh, why. Um so before I started my first company, I, you know, I worked for Xerox for eight and a half years when I came out of college. And I, you know, to those of you who are too young, Xerox was the Google of its day, right? It was really a, a great company. I loved working there. And, but I always knew that I was going to start my own company. And while I was there, I was preparing myself to start my own company. And what I did was I took uh, the same course uh, six years in a row hmm. and, uh, for, uh, so that's 18 times. I'm sorry. No, it was 12 times. I took it because each two semesters in a, in a year, but the, the case was case, the, the, uh, the, uh, course was cases from the Harvard business school. And if you're not a business major or whatever, you know, cases are where, they basically put you in a real company that's very famous. Well, most times it's famous. And you're the CEO. And they feed you this history or not. Let me say that. They feed you this point in time and you have to make a decision. And you have to make a whole series of decisions. And they do the same thing with law and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure, um, Sean, you're probably used to you know that type of things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love it. I love case history. I'm sorry, cases. Um, and so what What I got out of this uh, after studying 100 cases is that um, you can learn so much through history so that you don't repeat the same mistake. Also, you make better decisions. And, and lastly, you you can uh, accelerate your learning and your growth in business because you're honestly not really reinventing the wheel. Everyone thinks that every business that you start is something different. It's really not. It's just like, I, you, know, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I, I used to hear, maybe you, you, you would remember this, Sean, that they said that, there's something like only 16 types of uh, storylines or something mm -hmm. like that that have ever been written. And then they just kind of 
tweak that storyline. And I think the same thing can be said about businesses. And so I think understanding history, history of businesses, history of, 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 of the United States, history of the world, I think it all can help you reduce your chances of failure and improve your chances of success. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with you absolutely, and I, I think that that's a really insightful view. Um, there's so many examples that you could bring up to illustrate how that works. Uh, one that I was thinking of as you were talking was I don't, and I don't. Maybe it was uh, you took these classes too early, but uh, the example of Kodak, a very famous, yeah, oh yeah, death of a corporation uh, from short sightedness, and of course the story being that they were did did not engage with digital uh, photographic technology until it was too late. But Kodak had an interesting sort of fork in the road. In 1989, they were about to replace their CEO, and they had a choice between somebody who had come up through the old guard of the company and was you know very versed in in Kodak's corporate culture and what they had done in the past. But there was also a candidate of a new, kind of a younger CEO, someone who knew digital technology and knew the future, whatever. And they deliberately chose the old, the old guard way, and that was clearly the wrong choice. That that doomed that they were doomed from that moment on. I mean, it was it was just a matter of time as to when Kodak would go down. And <clears throat> I think a lot of it has to do. Well, that decision was made on a number because a number of assumptions were not questioned and this is one of the most important things that history i think can teach us is to question our assumptions um, i teach on my website uh, seanmonger.com i have a number of online history courses and one of them is on the vietnam war really interesting subject very deep subject but how we got into vietnam and why we stayed in vietnam is all about a refusal to question assumptions. And political leaders went into, from both parties, went into uh, situations dealing with foreign policy in the 1950s and 60s with a, a fairly blinkered view of, you know, we are anti-communist and we cannot allow the communists to gain any ground and these kinds of things. And no one really questioned the assumption. It's like, well, why is the idea of a communist Vietnam unacceptable to the United States. You know, no one asked that question. And if you had asked that question in the White House in, you know, 1960 or whatever, you would have, people would have stared at you like you had three heads. It's like, well, of course, you know, we can't accept a communist South Vietnam that, you know, but why not? You know, why can't we do that? Why is there no coexistence possible with this? Why is it worth tens of thousands of lives and billions of dollars to prevent that result. If, if the result is so bad that we're willing to spend that amount to prevent it, shouldn't we be able to quantify what it is we're afraid of? And I think companies fall into that same type of thinking where there are assumptions that have been made, particularly by people who aren't around anymore. You know, this is our corporate culture. This is this is you know what we've stood for as a company or a business or an industry or whatever, and we have to pay fealty to that assumption and and questioning it is sort of heresy and I think history shows us that the less we question our assumptions, the more trouble we're generally headed for. so Vietnam is a very uh cogent lesson in that type of assumption questioning of what happens when you don't um, when you don't question it another Another uh, lesson that comes out of uh, the Vietnam War that that I also like to talk about is the sunk cost fallacy. This is what destroyed Richard Nixon, for example, and, and Johnson even before him. Is that well, you know, we can't withdraw from Vietnam because we've already expended you know X number of lives or X billion dollars, and admitting that we're giving up on all of that would be politically untenable or, you know, whatever. So, you know, you're put in the position of, well, you know, let's kill more people and spend more billions of dollars in treasure to avoid having to admit that 
the people we've already killed and the treasure that we've already expended was done for nothing. That doesn't make any sense if you think about it logically. You know, Johnson was prepared to negotiate his way out of the war at the end of 1968. And Nixon, when he came into office, deliberately kind of sabotaged that strategy because of the sunk cost fallacy. Well, we can't give up because of, you know, parade of horribles that that supposedly results. I think that companies often fall into that as well. You know, well, we can't give up on this product line or this business line or you know, these factories that we built 60 years ago because we have so much invested in them. Well, if you if there's going to be no future in what you've invested in in the past, then what you've invested in is worthless. Um, in the realm of climate change, uh, this this comes around. Um, I've done a lot of looking at particularly the shipping industry, you know, cargo ships and that sort of thing. Most cargo ships uh, that have been built in the last you know, 20 some years or really even before that are built for, are very long-term assets. They're built for a very long lifespan, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. And, but they're built on a model that, you know, fossil fuels will continue to be cheap and readily available for the next 40, 50, 60 years, which is absolutely not going to be the case. So, you have these you're pouring money into building these long-term assets that do not have a long-term future and that doesn't make any sense from a logical standpoint if you look at the future the way it is and if you don't question that what's been true in the past is not necessarily going to be true in the future then you're never going to be able to see what's coming so I think all these lessons sort of fit together, and and there there is a lot that we can learn from mistakes that have been made in the past, and particularly a refusal to question what you know why we think the way we think, and I think that's a valuable lesson that history can teach us. It's tough because you know, listen, <clears throat> when you're running a company, you, the, you know one of the most important things you need to do is get everybody on the ship, so to speak, right? We're using an analogy, but and and getting everybody on the ship. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, not all of a sudden, but you then after the ship is going and it's going straight and it's a huge ship, uh, I'm not saying a huge company, but a, uh, uh, you know, it's all going in one direction and all of a sudden, you know, to change that ship's direction, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. And maybe some of the people who are on that ship should not be in that ship anymore. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I mean, you look at when Kennedy came in, right? I mean, it's it just seems that generals are well versed in history. That's what their training is usually about, right? They usually mm-hmm. are trained in history, and they come in and they usually are very. You can't do this because this happened here thirty years ago. This happened there eighty years ago. But when you had someone younger like Kennedy who came in, who was like. Uh, willing to not stick to history, right? Or listen to it, but yet make another make it other decisions. Uh, they seem to be, and I, I know it's a weird analogy, but uh, they seem to be willing to change the direction of the ship a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, so it does seem like age has the guts or the naivete. To be able to say, I'm not going to follow history. I don't really care about history. I don't know about history. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's some interesting observations there. Um, I think that a kind of a youthful reevaluation of the world is is necessary in in both politics and business periodically. Um, one of the things that I took a look at. When I was, I I wrote a book a couple of years ago about climate change and its effect on on history. And one of the things that I took a look at was sort of the generational identity of 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 presidents of the United States. There's been certain waves of generations that we've had who have uh, inhabited the presidency, from the Revolutionary Generation to you know the Civil War Generation, and then that sort of thing. And What's very interesting is as you can almost define eras in American history based on the age and the generation of the leaders who 
our elected president in the in this age, and and we are now coming out of an era. We're now at the very end of the era where the baby boom generation is in charge, and that era is ending very quickly. Uh, Biden is actually outside the baby boom, but the early baby boom presidents are now kind of aging out of of their eligibility or really their, their reasonability for political leadership. They're all, you know, in their late seventies and starting to get into their early eighties and such. And there's a, a sort of a pattern that you see in American history where generations kind of will hang on to power as long as they possibly can. This happened with the revolutionary generation after the American revolution. And there was a great problem about the 1820s, 1830s, of how to transition power to younger people. And that was a very rocky transition in in our American history. So I think we are about to go into a a period of transition kind of like that, where there is going to be a Generation X president or a millennial president, probably more likely. And things are going to change as a result of that because their assumptions are different and their their historical, what they know about history is how they see the same history is very different. And I think Kennedy obviously is is a, an example of how that process works. So I think that's also going to happen in business. And, and you know, we just talked about it a few minutes ago with the Kodak's choice to go with the old guard guy who had been in the company for decades versus the newer, younger possibility that they chose not to go with specifically for generational reasons, among other things. You know, well, we don't want someone of your generation running our company because you don't understand. I found this in uh, when I worked uh, when I practiced law and worked at large law firms. Law firms have really difficult times uh, with generational succession, and they are extraordinarily resistant to this kind of thing. You know, lawyers who've been practicing for 30, 40, 50 years, and they're now in the senior partner positions, they are extraordinarily reluctant to turn over more anything more than token responsibility to younger lawyers and you know younger associates. And you see sort of the kind of the big law uh, type of type of you know business law firms really kind of ossifying when they reach a certain age, you know, institutional age because of that effect. I talked uh, a couple of years ago to a, a consultant to law firms who had dealt with that question, and and he and I had some really interesting thoughts to, to trade about that. So, I think there, I think you're absolutely right that there is a generational sort of difference in how people see history and how you see history. Obviously, affects how you see the future, and that affects the decisions you make now. And I think that if People are looking. People in business are looking for some advice on, you know, how do we prepare our business for the future? Look at those younger people. You know, let them into positions of power earlier than you think they're ready for them. That would be my advice uh, for business leaders. You know, step aside. Let someone else take the reins. And if you really want to change the direction of a company, that's how you do it. Also, how you change the direction of a society or a country or another institution. You know, it really does come from a a different place. Um, And I think you need those perspectives sometimes. You think, um, you know, since the presidency is is only eight years at the most, right? I mean, do you think that I was going to ask you if there's an example of a leader who did a great job of, of, you know, my, my, I had a mentor for 20 years and he would explain it like this. Like, I, you know, I, it's a podcast, so I can't show you a graph, but he would say, you know, draw a circle and the circle, the outside of the circle is the market. Okay. And, and a young company is way out away from the circle. So there are this dot away, away from the circle. And the company keeps working, working, working to get closer to meet the circle, and which is the market. And then the company, if it's doing the right thing, hit, hit, hits the circle. And it stays on that circle for a period of time 
but the circle begins to move away and the company still stays straight. So the market's changed. The circle, uh, the, the company has gone off the circle. And, you know, your trick with a company is to try to stay on that circle. But there's all this pressure uh, because you've built all this infrastructure and you've bought all these people that it's really hard. So is there a great example of a leader who has been able to stay on that circle? And what did he or she do to stay on that circle for a very, very long period of time? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And I I think there are some candidates you could come up with. Um, I think uh, Franklin Roosevelt would be a good example of someone who was very innovative in his political thinking and was able to to kind of stay on that circle longer than many of his contemporaries were. Uh, Roosevelt's actually Roosevelt's journey was very interesting because he was reared in one of these very rich families from New York State for which politics was not really an entitlement but but sort of like a a family dalliance. You know, he was related to Teddy Roosevelt. He had many other relatives who were sort of expected to be politicians at some point in their lives. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like an ambition thing, like, oh, I want power. But it was, it was more like, well, when you're very rich and you're at the top of this New York society at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, this is sort of what you're expected to do. And he sort of came up in that realm and he, he did have some offices and he was, you know, assistant secretary of the Navy and various other things and got into the machine politics of the democratic party. And then he got polio at age 39, which polio at the time was a, was primarily a disease that affected children, but he was paralyzed. And this, he, of course he thought his political career was over. He thought his life was essentially over, uh, and there was a long period of reflection kind of in his own life. And then in the 1920s, he started to kind of struggle back from that. And he became involved in the Warm Springs you know, Rehabilitation Home, which he later uh, uh, greatly expanded. And I think that those experiences really made the difference for him both personally and politically. Because when he was elected president in 1932... It's not like the New Deal was something that was totally formed and was you know, on a tray ready to go. And he offered it to the people saying, oh, do you want this? If you want this, elect me president. It was, it was more ad hoc. It was more like we have to do something about the depression. We have to do something radical. I don't know what I'm going to do, but if you elect me, I'll do something. This is the contrast between him and Herbert Hoover, who was like, well, we can't do anything which is ironic because Hoover had been elected originally as a doer. He was like one of the guys who got things done in America and was very famous for that. So Roosevelt came in not knowing exactly what he was going to do, but he knew he had to do something. And so the early New Deal, he threw basically everything he could think of against the wall. And it's like, well, okay, well, is you know, is this going to work? You know, National Recovery Act, okay, Civilian Conservation Corps, will that work? Well, what about what if we tinker with this, or what if we tinker with that, or bank reform, or you know, whatever? And he was really innovative and kind of on his feet, sort of thinking about these these types of questions. The reason this this is also, I don't think, not as well understood as it should be. But the reason we won World War II was because Roosevelt had already tried a lot of the things that eventually worked in World War II in the New Deal. So how do we ramp up industrial production? How are we going to build, you know, tens of thousands of bombers or tanks or, you know, liberty ships or whatever? All of those things had been road tested. The same types of mechanisms in government, in business, cooperation between government and business, those mechanisms had been road tested in the New Deal under essentially kind of field conditions. When World War II came, Roosevelt, who knew it was coming, was like, well, you know, okay, we have to pivot again. We have to, you know, let's take what worked in the past. Let's tweak it a little bit. You know, we're going to have to build lots of tanks and bombers and ships and this kind of stuff. But this is how we do it. 
And he could easily have been left behind by all of those developments if he had stuck to sort of the 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 thinking in which he had originally been reared. But he was able to break out of that thinking. So if you're looking for an example of someone who can sort of stay on that circle where the circle's a moving target, which I think is the concept you were getting at, I think Roosevelt is a really good example of someone who could do that. And what what was it that he what was it that he did? Was it just the was it just that he was open to new ideas? Well, I think it was it was not just new ideas, but it was he was creative at finding ways to make kind of and I'm talking about machinery, not in a, a, a literal sense, but kind of the machinery of government and administration. He was very skilled at looking at that machinery and saying, well, if if we tweaked it in this direction, we could get it to do something else. A lot of the New Deal programs involved business, you know, the, the interface between the federal government and and various business interests and industries. And there was sometimes cooperation, there was sometimes competition and, and resistance. But eventually there was kind of a symbiosis between what the federal government was doing to try to help people in the depression and what business industries, particularly banking or, you know, large manufacturing interests were doing to try to recover from the depression. And then when World War II broke out, Roosevelt sort of leveraged those same kinds of relationships and those same kinds of sort of administrative machinery to to go to business and say, okay, we're going to need 25,000 bombers next year. Who's going to build them? How are we going to pay for it? You know, and those types of relationships and those types of he he knew when to push with executive action or when to kind of cajole with political action or to lead with sort of a a forward facing, you know, public uh, type of pressure. He understood how all of those things fit together. So it is new ideas, but it's also sort of a savviness about the tools that he had at his disposal and how he could deploy them best, I think was his real brilliance. You know, I feel like the older you, I'm 57, right? And the older you get, um, the more you have to do everything you can to stay current. Uh, and it gets harder and harder because a lot of things that you want to, you maybe you're just not interested in it, right? Like mm-hmm. like things such as with social media, right? With some of the advanced, the more advanced social media stuff, uh, a lot of people who are in their 50s and 60s and so on and so forth really are, aren't interested in. Um, or if they are, they've tried it and they say, you know, it's just not for me. But yet, um, I, you know, if you stay current with all that different stuff and you use it, you know, are you able to stay on that circle longer, so to speak? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that you have to be up on, on the new things that are happening. I think that as you get older, you get wiser sort of about your own past and about sort of the past in general. Again, talking about sort of generational identities. You know, when you are young, it, it's it, there are so many possibilities and there are so many things that seem, I guess, malleable. And And when you're older, you start to become a little bit more cynical and say, well, these things work in this way and you can't change them or you know, those things are the way they are. But I think there's sort of a, a a middle way between those where if you recognize that not everything remains the same and there are ways to sort of change the way things are within within certain limits or sometimes radical change is necessary where, you know what, this, this old institution is not working. We have to abolish it or you know, get rid of it or make it irrelevant or, or, you know, whatever. I think as you get older, you develop a wisdom about how to make the right choices in those, in those ways. Uh, 
and so there's a middle ground between being sort of ossified where you are stuck in the past and cynical about everything and then being kind of inexperienced and you have all these great ideas, but with no practical way to implement them. Yeah. So finding that middle ground is supremely difficult for political leaders, for companies, for individuals. It's it's the hardest thing that, that you can do. And I think that we all have to strive to to find that that balance there. Um, and we'll probably fail more often than we'll succeed. But then again, everybody is 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 kind of working toward that goal or should be. Is there a a president who is uh, so set in his ways that he went off the you know using the circle and the line analogy that he went way you know he went way off the path of the uh, I, that's not the market but uh, you know he was just because he was completely un, inflexible he was a, a terrible leader for our country. Yes, uh, I would say James Buchanan, okay. the president right before Lincoln, super interesting guy to to, to talk about. Uh, Buchanan, there, there needs to be a movie made of his life because uh, it would be it would be really interesting. But he was a, a politics was his whole life. That that was his it was his profession. It was everything he thought about. He he was never married. He was. He never had children. You know, politics was his life. And, and it was this very kind of ground level sort of retail politics, you would say. He, he came up in Pennsylvania in the uh, – his career started in like the 18-teens, I think. And he was extraordinarily adept at like politicking. You know, we got to get this guy into this office, or this person should be put in the put in charge of the Democratic Party of Lancaster County, or you know, whatever. He was very good at that kind of thing, and it took him about thirty five years to become president. He was one of these sort of strivers that really wanted to be president his whole life, and it took him thirty five years to get there. When he got there, the country was coming apart because of slavery, uh, terrible sectional conflict. The both political parties were shattering and reconstituting themselves. And after this single-minded 35-year battle to become president of the United States, which was very difficult in 1856 because of the problems that the country faced, he finally got there. And you get a sense just looking at him that he, he's just sort of like, ah, oh, finally, you know, I finally got this, finally got this. But he was such a failure because he saw everything in this very local machine politics type of way. And he thought that the way you do politics is you find the right guy with the right connections and the right loyalties and you put him in a particular job and then you're done, basically. So his whole administration was, okay, we're going to put this person in this job and this person in this job. And here's what the cabinet is going to be. And we're going to appoint so-and-so the tax collector of New York. And well, that guy shouldn't be the tax collector of Philadelphia because he, you know, stepped on my niece's foot 20 years ago or, you know, whatever. I mean, he had all of these, these, this very long kind of Rolodex of political uh, qualifications in his, in his mind. He didn't really understand that part of politics and part of national leadership was guiding policy and reacting to things that were happening. And so things started to happen at a very rapid clip during his presidency as the, the country came apart. And he was paralyzed because he's like, well, I, I you know, I can't deal with this. I, I already appointed so-and-so, you know, to, to do this. Isn't that enough? And so if you read Buchanan's public papers and his his speeches particularly, most of them are very long, impassioned uh, explanations of why he can't do something. And that was not the leadership that was needed on the eve of the Civil War. So when states started to secede, he's like, well, this is it's not that he was pro-Southern. I mean, he, he was he was sympathetic to slavery on some political level. But when states started seceding after the election of Lincoln, he was like, well, this sucks. They can't secede. You know, this is illegal. This is terrible. But I can't do anything. 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I, there's nothing I can do because the constitution limits me here or there, or, you know, whatever. And we're not going to resupply Fort Sumter. You know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And he just sat on his hands and let the whole thing crumble. And then finally, when he got out of office, he couldn't wait to get out of office after, which is ironic because after a 35 year battle to become president, he's, you know, sitting there waiting for Lincoln to show up so he could pass off the job to him. And in fact, he says at his inauguration, he says to Lincoln, you know, if you're as happy to enter this office as I am to leave it, you're the happiest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. There's an irony there. And there's mm-hmm. such a failure there too, because he was so Buchanan on paper was the most qualified person who had ever been president up to that point in time. And he was the worst president. So he's a very spectacular example of how you can get really set in your ways and, and your assumptions and be completely unequal, particularly to a rapidly changing situation. And uh, we we have a couple minutes left. The uh, The opposite of that which would be somebody who stayed on the on the circle for a very long period of time was able to adjust, uh, really, you know, continue to learn. Uh, wasn't set in his ways. Um, one of these days, I'll say her ways too. But uh, you know, uh, someone who you think uh, did a good job of uh, being a modern person. Mm-hmm. Who would you say that would be? Well, although I this is not to imply a, a political agreement uh, with him, I, I disagree with him politically greatly. But I would say, uh, believe it or not, George W. Bush was someone who had, I think, you would say, a, a fairly low level of competence when he came into the office. But what gets overshadowed is toward the very end of his presidency, like. You know, 2007, 2008, particularly the economic crisis and the things that were happening, after, you know, late in his second term, he actually became quite competent and also open to new ideas in a way that he wouldn't have considered early in his term. I think a lot of things went wrong in, in the George W. Bush administration, um, particularly in the early years. But if you're looking for an example of someone who can assimilate new facts new ways of doing things and sort of grow in the job. Several pres- recent modern presidents have grown in the job as well. I think Clinton, you would have to put in, in this category as well. Again, his basically his last year, two years in office, he was really good and very adept at, at knowing you know, when to push and when not to push and how to do something with executive action or how not to do something. So I think there's some interesting examples of how the modern presidency, and part of it's sort of a learning on the job type of thing, but um, I think both of them were also open to assimilating new ideas in ways that they were not when they entered the job. It's very interesting that uh, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are uh, quite close friends now, despite having great political disagreements. But I think part of it is because they, they they may recognize that quality in each other. Uh, which is very interesting. So let's let's summarize some lessons that we've talked about so far. I mean, this really this podcast could go on for a couple of hours. Really, um, you know, the 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 concept behind the uh, with the way I had said it was, you know, understand business history, right? Understanding business history, and it doesn't mean that you have to follow it. Uh, you know, your company uh, with it. But if you understand business history, you realize that things uh, repeat themselves and, you know, you can learn a lot about that. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, Number two, um, um, if you are, you know, question, I like what you said with this with Sean is question your assumptions about, you know, where you think you're going to go as a company and question your um, assumptions about why you think it's going to go there, and 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 uh, you know how you made those decisions. Don't be so set in your ways that you're like, oh, it's definitely going to go this way. You know, question, and then you know, keep the ship going if that's where you think it's going to go. Um, third thing would be, you know, stay relevant. Right. Oh, let's take a step back before we say stay relevant. It was if you are going to change the direction, uh, potentially look like you give us an example with Kodak is bring in maybe some younger people. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Or just change, bring in change. Right. 
Um, the fourth one, which is, you know, one I was leading to is that stay relevant, right? Like you stay, know what's going on in various different technologies and businesses and trends and, you know, don't get so old so quick that you don't know what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, what else would you say? I think those are the main ones. Um, I, I think that one thing I, I might add would be history is very instructive in showing us, you know, where we've been in the past, but also it shows us how quickly and how completely things can change. Sometimes there are periods of great upheaval in a very short period of time, and that does happen from time to time. So I, I would say you can't always, I mean, question your assumptions, obviously, stay relevant, stay keen on what's going on. Also recognize that the future is not necessarily going to be like the past, uh, especially the recent past. And as we get closer to periods where things change very rapidly on a very large scale, the past... the particularly in business, you know, expecting that next quarter is going to be like last quarter is an erroneous assumption. Certainly, we all found that at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. So you also have to plan, well, not you can't really plan for it, but you also have to be cognizant that a great change can occur in a very short period of time. And that is also a feature of history as well. Yeah. And I would add to that, I would tell you that it's not a matter that uh, it can change. It will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And so, so I'll give you a, a good example to kind of close out some of this um, conversation to make it real life. <clears throat> um, when my business, I, I, the last two companies I've started, I've had a business partner who's excellent. And he, like I have been, has been building companies for 25 years. And so when we started financing solutions 11 years ago, um, a lot of our discussion was about, okay, wh what, what are we going to do when a recession hits? It wasn't uh, first thing that just ha have that conversation because we had all over the prior 15 years had been through three recessions. Mm -hmm. And in general, a recession happens every seven to 10 years. So if you're a, a new business owner and like I had been 25 years ago where my company grew, you know, a thousand percent every year for three years. And I thought, wow, this is great. This isn't going to change. And then a recession hits. Mm -hmm. I realized that uh, my business wasn't as good as I thought it was and that you have to plan for recessions. So when we started Financing Solutions 11 years ago, we said, okay, these are the steps that we are going to do when the next recession hits. And guess what happens? Coronavirus hits, which by the way, is a recession. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when it first started, we thought that it was going to be a recession. And we put all the plans that in place that we thought that was going to happen, which by the way, were really smart and boy, did we did really well, you know, we, we did really well. And so the, the point of what I'm saying here is here's an idea of experienced business people who through history and experience knew that recessions happen every seven to 10 years. And, you know, we had a plan in place so that when it happened, we weren't a deer in a headlight. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's a powerful concept of understanding business history, understanding economic history, even understanding the history of people like we were discussing with all the different presidents. Um, I can't see how it's going to hurt you. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah, completely. Well, it's a great topic. Anyway, you know, uh, Stephen Ambrose was one of my favorite authors of all time. And he would say, he'd say, history is the most interesting thing in the world. 
because it's about people. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. people are interesting. Yep. Right? Absolutely. And look at most of the things that Sean, you talked about today, when you give us examples, it was all about people. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I would like to thank so very much Sean Munger uh, for coming on to today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. Again, that's FS as in financing solutions, creditline.com. Sean, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, uh, you can go to my website, which is just uh, seanmunger.com. Uh, Sean is spelled the Irish way. Um, and my email address is sean at seanmunger.com. Uh, I also have a cu- uh, some podcasts of my own. I have a uh, show called Green Screen, which is the environmental movie podcast. It's a lot of fun. And it's on hiatus at the moment, but a historical show called Second Decade. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel, so uh, you can look me up there. Fantastic. And if our listeners are li- are interested, I uh, tweet at uh, S Holastic, which is my name, S-H-A-L-A-S-N-I-K. It's all for business owners. Uh, it's all uh, maybe some- usually something I'm thinking about at the time or working on and something that I think is important. And uh, so again, S Holastic is my handle. And so, you know, thank you for all listening, everybody. It's the end of the year. I thought at the end of 2020, I thought, oh boy, aren't we happy 2020 is going to go away. And here we are, history repeating itself, right? At the end of (laughs) 2021, we're like, oh, because glad for 2021 will go away. And, uh, you know, I think we're all a little tired of history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, you know, every, everybody have a happy, joyous and healthy new year. Uh, thank you for listening and fantastic. Uh, everybody have a fantastic day. Get out, enjoy, relax at the end of the year, regroup, go back at it at next year. All right, buddy. Have a good day. <laughs>